Hear the word of God from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family. Hope everyone is doing well today. Today we're going to look at the last remaining text in the book of Matthew. And we've been in the book of Matthew since the beginning of the year. So this is the last text in it. And we've kind of flown through the book. And we've brought in pieces of Isaiah, major themes of Isaiah into this book as we studied it together. And during this time, we've kind of seen how the, the motifs and the, the themes of Isaiah, the suffering servant, the Messiah, have been fleshed out by Matthew in his gospel. Next week, we're going to see Pastor Eric's going to preach on how all those themes kind of wrap us up, and he's going to do a little wrap-up on Matthew and Isaiah together. But today, we're going to talk about the last words that Jesus gave to his disciples, what otherwise known as the Great Commission. Over the past few weeks, we've beheld the passion of Jesus as he was betrayed, beaten, crucified, and buried. Last Sunday, we celebrated the glorious moment of his resurrection. We heard the angels say, I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. And we learned that the resurrection changed everything and that our hope eternal is ours. This morning, the final passage of Matthew shows us very clearly the implications of this radical change. The Gospel of Matthew ends with a charge or a command or a mission that the resurrected Christ gives to his disciples. His mission has been accomplished. Theirs is just beginning. Matthew makes this the last thought that he gives to his readers because his aim has not been to simply chronicle the life of Jesus. His purpose has been to show people that Jesus really was the Messiah, whose mission was to inaugurate the kingdom of God. Therefore, his gospel ends with a clear sense that there is something more to do. The way the gospel of Matthew ends as if there's a part two coming, another chapter that needs to be written, and that is only the beginning of the story. So I hope you see through our time with Matthew a tremendous theme over and over again about Christian discipleship. This theme that you can see over and over again is the way Jesus teaches, the way he calls his followers to live, his expectations for his people. Jesus is about the original mandate that God gave Adam and Eve to make more image bearers of God. Jesus is making disciples of himself because this is how the kingdom of God advances, by making more image bearers of God. And so people look at this passage, this called the Great Commission, and they use it to be a call for just straight up outreach and evangelism. It's all about sharing the gospel to the end of the earth. All need to hear, so we better be about to work. And they're correct to say that. But other people look at this passage and use it as a call to deeper discipleship, to teaching in the church. It's about making true disciples. It's not about numbers, it's about death. They look, we want to make disciples that look, act, and live like Jesus. Not converts, but disciples. And that's also correct to look at this passage and think that as well. Guys, some people look at this passage and they can come to odds with each other. It seems like both things are on opposite spectrums. They think, are we about evangelism or we're about disciple making? As if they're two separate things. That is not correct. We're called to live in those elements, both those elements, of, that come out of this passage in equal tension with each other. 
Now, I love that word tension. You guys know, if you've been at Waypoint for a while, you know that's one of my favorite words. I believe as a Christian, we're called to live in tension. Tension between you know, living in suffering and also blessing. Tension between being low and high. Tension between uh, so many different elements of the Christian life is about how do you live in that tension? And it's a beautiful place to live in. Some of you guys hate it, and I understand that. Some of you guys are like, I want the Bible to be clear, tell me what to do, so I'll just follow directions, you know. My wife being one of those people, she's a rule follower. You give my wife rules, she'll follow the rules. You give her instructions, she'll follow the instructions. Myself, I kind of like the tension. I'm like, ooh, kind of like ambiguous, I like this. But the reality is, so much of the Christian life is rules and tension. So you're like, wait a minute, you just said it's all about tension. No, it's both too. I know, it's very confusing. But that's why God gives us something incredible. He gives us the Holy Spirit to guide us in how to live when we need to live. He gives us community. He gives us his word. And we need all of that as we live out this Christian life together. So as we look at this um, passage, as, as an introduction, I, I just want to be honest with you. We're going to do a two-part kind of message and sermon to this passage today. But I was really tempted to do an eight-part. Like an eight-part message, eight-point message. I was really tempted to do that, but I decided not to because I didn't want to torture you with that. So I decided to divide it into two parts. The first part is this. The first two verses, 16 and 17, form the first section of this passage. And we're going to see a description of the disciples obediently going to Galilee, but also interestingly in love, Matthew paints a picture of them struggling with their faith. And honestly, most people, when they preach the passage on the Great Commission, they overlook these verses. But there's so much I want you to get from this. So that's going to be the first part. Then the second part, as we look through 18 through 20, we're going to see Jesus declaring his authority, you're going to see Jesus giving a command, and you're going to see Jesus issuing comforting encouragement and a promise to his disciples. So there are two parts that we're going to like. So part one, the disciples' obedience and continuing doubt. So we look at the first part of verse 16, we're told that the 11 disciples obediently made their way to Galilee. Remember that Jesus appeared to the woman with the instructions to tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee, right? So they did. Now mind you, this was a four-day travel from Jerusalem. Four-day travel. It was a hike. It was not like right down the street. It was a four days travel. So I mean, if I was one of the disciples, I would have been like, oh yes, Jesus is alive. Are you serious? Awesome, where is he? And the women are like, go to Galilee. I'm like, what? That's far away. That's four days of like consistent walking. Like that's a hike. Why, why are we meeting together? I want to see Jesus now. Can, can you not just Bethany? Bethany's like an hour away. Why couldn't we do Bethany? We couldn't do somewhere else. Why couldn't we just do another part of Jerusalem? This is just not fair. But Jesus had a purpose in this. It wasn't just randomly. He didn't just say, let's go to Galilee because I want to make the disciples walk a little bit. He had a reason for sending them to Galilee. It was where their ministry had begun. It was almost like a homecoming for them. Jesus was intentional with these instructions. He reminded them of, of their original call to be fishers of men. He's calling back to Galilee. By calling them back to Galilee, I want to suggest to you that even in that action, Jesus is emphasizing the worldwide mission that he's calling them to. You see, Galilee was called Galilee of the Gentiles. The majority of the people in Galilee were actually Gentiles. So he's calling them to the mission of the Gentiles. He's calling them to the worldwide vision of the gospel. They're not simply to minister to the Jews. This is significant because if you remember the first time when Jesus called them, he literally said, hey, I want you to, to, to go to the Jews first. But now he's expanding the vision. By, by saying go to Galilee, he's inaugurating an explicitly worldwide mission that we see later explained and further talked about in verse 19. So Matthew's emphasizing for us a Gentile mission, even this last picture he gives to the church. 
Then if you look at the second half of verse 16 in Matthew, you'll note he specifically mentions a mountain. Do you notice how it says specifically, meet me on the mountain? He met him on the mountain. Now, neither Matthew 26, verse 32, or Matthew 28, verse 7, or Matthew 28, verse 10 mention a mountain in Galilee. But all those passages simply say, go to Galilee at the pre-designated place. But it may be that Matthew is telling us here that, issue, that Jesus issued this great commission from the same mountain at which he first commissioned his disciples. What's significant is that all throughout the Old Testament, significant announcements from God for all the people came on mountains. At any rate, it may be that Matthew's drawing us attention to Jesus as the new Moses. You saw what happened when he did that at the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount, he was on top of a mountain to show that Jesus is the new Moses. This is transformative message. This is God's message to all of his people. So here's Jesus again on the mountain, giving this message, just like, uh, just like Moses. And in this message, he's given a worldwide mission as part of the new covenant. So Jesus is the new Moses giving a new message for his people to go out and enter in. So if you look at the beginning of verse 17, you see the disciples' response. When they see Jesus, they instinctively worship. By this word worship, Matthew means that the disciples fell down to their knees and then fell down on their faces and prostrated themselves before the Lord Jesus in loving and humble adoration. They worshiped him with all their being. Now Matthew is telling you something there. See, these are good, well-versed in scripture, Orthodox Jews. And they know above all else this one principle of religion. You do not worship anything that's not God. That's the number one, the most profound element to their faith. You worship only the one true God. You worship nothing else. It's their first commandment. It's their last commandment. If they forget everything else in their memory breaks, if they forget any other scripture, if they forget everything else about their understanding of God, is that you do not worship anything but God. But Matthew's leaving this impression that these 11 orthodox, consecrated Jews are on their faces before the Lord Jesus. So there is no doubt in what he's saying here. He's saying they are proclaiming Jesus as God. Don't miss that. That is so significant. That is so significant. Because actually nowhere else does it say that they actually fell down before Jesus in that way. To worship him. Because they didn't truly get it yet. They didn't truly understand what the Messiah was. They didn't truly understand who Jesus was. But now they did. And they fell down and worshiped him as God. And it's so important because we live in a day of skepticism. And we under, under, often there's many academics who are skeptical of the claims of Lord Jesus as the Christ, as God. And we have to remember that in the early church, they were so convinced of the deity of the Lord Jesus that it was actually three centuries later until a heretic came out with the idea that, with the nerve to even deny the deity of Christ. It took three centuries before even the first heretic said, Jesus is not really God. Now, there are other heretics who denied the humanity of, of, of Jesus, said that he was God, but he might never have been actually man. But nobody said that until three centuries after in the early church. And honestly, he was refuted, and it wasn't until another 1,500 years later that more heretics came out and said that Jesus wasn't God. So for 1,500 years, pretty much, there was there's no way that people would argue that Jesus wasn't God. They all professed him as divine and as God. Now, I know modern liberals and uh, liberal academics do it all the time. They profess that, no, Jesus never claimed that he was God. The Bible never says that Jesus was God. Yes, it does. Over and over and over again. Now, there are not many things that church is certain about God. I want you to be honest with you. There are not many things that I hold firm to. That's like I hold close, you know, like this is 100% the way it is. 
but this is one of them, that Jesus is both God and man. And we hold firm to that truth and that teaching. The deed of the Lord Jesus Christ is the center of the Gospels, and if you rip that out of the Gospels, we really have nothing left. Don't make him into just a great moral teacher. It won't work. It's not enough for us. And Matthew leaves us with this picture that testifies to the deity of Christ. So then if you look at me at the end of verse 17, you see Matthew telling you something kind of astonishing. And this is not what you'd be expecting if you're reading this passage. This is not what you have written. If this was fiction, you wouldn't write this. If you were writing fiction and this was something that you were just writing out, you would not write these words. But it says this. It says, but some doubted. It's just on the screen. Put that on the screen again. He says these words, but some doubted. Now, why in the world would Matthew tell you that? I mean, we just said they were all just worshiping God. This is like a huge moment of success. This is, yay, Jesus is alive. Everything is awesome. Woohoo! And then why bum it out? I mean, Matthew, come on, man. This is a good moment. Why, why, why call out those few disciples that were doubting? It's kind of mean. I mean at least he didn't call them out by name. He's like, well, but you know, Thomas doubted. Or that Peter character, John, he doubted. That would have been, that would have been really mean, but he didn't do that. But still, why do that? And first of all, I say it because it's just an indication of the historical accuracy of the account. He said it because some did. Some just did doubt, so he, he didn't make it up. He wasn't falsifying these claims. He's literally saying this is what happened. Some doubted. Some struggled with their faith. Some questioned. I love this. I love this so much because with one breath, he's telling that some doubted. But with one breath, he's telling that they worship. But with another breath, some doubted. Then he's going to tell you how they handled their doubts. What helped them in their doubting. Because he knows a great commission is coming. These, this incredible call is coming. And he wants to communicate that, yes, they doubted. Yet they still accomplished the great commission, this incredible call. Because it wasn't them in their own power that did it. He wants to erase us from every state that says the disciples are better than us. They're incredible, superhuman, demigod-type people. Or there were these awesome faith that we could never attain to type people. He wanted us to make clear that, no, these are normal people who doubted. So it wasn't in their power that they accomplished great things. It reminds us that the commission which Jesus gives us in this passage cannot be done in human strength. It can only be done wholly through the strength of the Lord Jesus I love how we paint this picture of worship and doubt, and it speaks volumes to me. You guys might be thinking here, you might be sitting here, you may be thinking that you're the only person who goes to church who struggles with doubt. You might still feel so alone in that. And Matthew is saying that the disciples struggled, and countless people have struggled after you. You're not alone in your struggle. It's okay that you're here and you may be struggling with doubt. You may be just a skeptical, doubtful person and you're here for the first time and you're kind of like looking at Christians and Christianity and thinking, what is this whole thing? I'm coming in very skeptical and doubtful and prove to me something, show me something. Or you might be here and someone who's been following Jesus for your whole life, but there are moments and there are times that you're just kind of like, is this real? What am I doing? And it's okay. Because the disciples struggled as well. But here's the catch. But they still chose to worship. Do you hear that? My people, it's okay that you have moments where you struggle and need to cry out like the centurion. One of my favorite prayers, he prays, I believe, help my unbelief. As in that cry, you're still choosing to believe and worship God. It's in those sweet moments of true confession that God meets you in a powerful way. When you acknowledge that you will not and choose not to live this life 
on your own strength alone, then the Spirit does a mighty work in you. Guys, I love it that you said, yes, I have doubts, but I, in my doubts, I still choose. Can I tell you, that I didn't really know, trying to figure out if you love somebody is a difficult thing, right? Sometimes it's easy, you're like, oh, I love this, I love that. Sometimes it's easy to say you love, because I love pizza and I love food, whatever, right? But when you're in a relationship, right, and you're dating somebody, and you're at the point where you're like, do I love that person? And you try to figure it out. You're like, whoa, do I, what does that mean, love? And you start questioning it. Well, like, I love my parents, but is that the same thing? Or then you say, oh, I love to, you know, roller coasters. Is that the same thing? Like, you, you struggle with this idea of love. And that's honestly with me. With, when I, came to, when I was dating my wife, and I was like, what does it mean to love her? And there was times where I'm like, well, I love her, but do I really love her? And they're like, I love her a lot, but do I really, really love her? And I struggled, and I struggled, because how do I define that idea? And I was struggling with that, because in my struggles, I doubted, do I love her? Do I really love her? Do I love her infinitely? Can I love her more? Can I love her less? I struggled with that. And you know what radically transformed my relationship with my wife was this, that I made the choice to choose to love her. Even in my doubts, even in my struggles at times, I said, you know what? She's deserving of love, and I choose to love her. And that changes everything. Can I tell you something, people? It is okay to question sometimes. It is okay to have doubts. It is okay to wrestle and struggle over issues. It's okay. We're called to choose to love. Because he's worthy, he's worthy of it, and he loves you and meets you in that place. Does that make sense? Are you guys with me on that? and the Spirit will do a mighty work in you. And in this first section, we see Matthew emphasizing the call to the Gentiles, the weakness of the disciples, yet their proclamation and worship of Jesus. But then we go to the second section, we see Jesus' authority, his command, and his encouragement. If you look at this, I want you to hear the, the words, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Notice Jesus' words here at verse 18 is juxtaposed with the disciples' unbelief. What Matthew just told you at verse 17 that they were somewhere doubting, then what is the very next word thing that he does? He shows you Jesus doing something incredible. He says, she shows you Jesus speaking his word saying that authority is mine. What Matthew's telling us, we're trying to tell you that it's the word of Jesus that we can run to and cling to when we struggle with doubt. When we struggle with doubt, we can bring forth the word and the knowledge and the truth of Jesus to our hearts and, and, and know that that will minister to us as we cling to and choose to love him. There are a lot of doubting Christians out there looking for signs, right? You, you've heard one of those stories like, God, just show me a sign. Prove to me that you're real. Just give me a miracle. And let me tell you the miracles that he's given. He's given you the miracle of the life of Jesus Christ and the words that he spoke, given to us in the word of God. He's given us the miracle of community united by his spirit. He had proven miracle after miracle again. And his words are true and we can cling to them. And they'll help us as we deal with our doubt. Some of the most profound things is when I struggle is I choose to worship him and I cling to the promises in his word. Because if I choose to worship him, if I choose to believe that he's good, then I will also choose to believe that his word is real. Does that make sense? You guys with me so far? 
Verse 18, then in that verse you see the claim that he makes. Now I want you to stop and think of the radical nature of this claim. This astounding claim that Jesus makes. He says that all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. I don't know why. I feel like there's a, like a movie theater voice like that. All authority has been. You know, I don't know. That's my picture in my mind. All authority is mine. My claim is baffling for at least two reasons. First of all, if Jesus isn't who he said he was, then that single most kind of megalomaniacal statement ever said by a human being to claim that all authority. If there's... Ever you guys know He-Man? Anybody know He-Man? Right, He-Man? Good, good old school He-Man. I have the power! That's kind of the idea that I think of when, when Jesus makes his statement. He says, I have all the power in all the universe. Everything is under my authority. I, what a huge proclamation. I mean, to claim that, if you're not God, that all authority the universe is given to you is either a statement of like a crazy power-grabbing tyrant or of a deluded person. You're either Napoleon with a Napoleon complex that you want to conquer everything, or you're on a level with someone who's completely off his rocker. Like if you think that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you and you're not God, then you're either a complete maniac who wants just all power, or you're completely deluded. Right? Realize how radical a statement Jesus is making here. He's making an absolute claim about his kingship and lordship over the universe. You can't just make this into a, a warm and fuzzy Jesus who has good teaching ideas that makes your life better amongst many other religions. He's not saying those things. He's literally saying that I'm the king of the universe. I have all the power. He-man's got nothing on him. That's what he's saying here. All authority belongs to him. And that's such a different idea of how we try to paint Jesus into, right? We try to make him like, oh, the solid, good teacher. He's proclaiming his authority here. That's not the only perplexing statement about this, though. Notice what he says, all authority has been given to me. Isn't that a strange statement? Now, if Jesus claims to be equal with the Father, if he claims to be divine, if Jesus claims to be the second person of the Trinity, what do you mean all authority has been given to him? Sure, you, you already have it, right? What does this mean? This is why we needed the eight-part sermon series. I'm not going to dive into it. It's going to take too long. But we'll get it in this sentence. It means before the foundation of the world, the Father, in this beautiful covenant of redemption, had promised the Son that in fulfilling his obligations as the mediator of the covenant, these are words that I'm, I'm quoting here, the obligation as mediator of the covenant and rescuing and redeeming his people, everything would be placed under his feet. These are words from my professor, Ligon Duncan, that I had at RTS. No, no, let me say that again. He says, before the foundation of the world, the Father and the covenant of redemption had promised the Son that in fulfilling his obligations as the mediator of the covenant and rescuing and redeeming his people would have placed under his feet everything. That's what Psalm 2 is all about. And literally Jesus is saying that I delivered. I did what was promised to do from the beginning of time in redeeming mankind. And now the Father promised that all authority in heaven and earth is his. The implications are staggering. Think about it. Jesus says to his disciples that all authority is mine. And this is so important that these disciples understand this because he's about to ask 11 trembling, broken men to become the foundation of a worldwide movement that will end up causing the nations to bow before him and profess him as king of kings and lord of lords. It's an astounding claim. And that's the first thing we have to see that this claim is what gives the, these people, these weak, normal people, the ability to go forth and make and change the world. 
don't miss that. See, when people see this great commission, they miss out on that first part. That's because all authority is his. Can we go forth and actually be, do any part of this great commission? Because it's Christ doing the work, and he is king over it all. And then we go back now to the command part of this passage. And I want you to notice the focus of the command. So often, we kind of the way our scriptures are usually translated, we first focus on the idea of go, right? It says go and make disciples, right? But as you know, because like, you guys are all Greek scholars, there is there's one imperative in this passage, and there are three participles. And you guys are looking at me like, what? I haven't done that stuff in a long time. Okay, what that means is this. That there is an imperative in this passage. There's a true command, and the rest of them are kind of describing the command, the way to do the command. And the command isn't to go. It's to, the command is to make disciples. Does that make sense? So the command here is to make disciples. The three participles are going, baptizing, and teaching. Right? You guys with me so far? So the command is, the literal command is make disciples. You do that by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. Are you with me so far? That's how you make disciples, how you do a command. And the imperative is what Jesus wants the church to do until he comes. Make disciples. And the way they do it is by going, baptizing, and teaching. So I want you to think about this for a minute. He says, go make disciples. He doesn't say build up the numbers of your church. He doesn't say go out and get as many people to kind of assent and mentally agree to the gospel as you can. He doesn't say go out and get people to pray a prayer. He doesn't say go out and get people to sign a card. He says your aim, your goal is to make disciples. He's literally saying he doesn't want people just to mouth a few words. He wants people who are true followers of him. Not membership, not expansion, not making your church great or your church known, but true discipleship. Followers of Jesus Christ who are consumed with zeal for his glory. Oswald Chambers once said, our Lord Jesus had only one desire, and that was to do the will of his heavenly Father. And to have that desire is a characteristic of a disciple. And so Jesus is saying, I want people who are consumed with the desire to do the will of the Father, just like he is. And these disciples are going to have a kingdom vision. They want to see Jesus' kingdom built up. And so exactly how are we supposed to go about that? He doesn't just give us a general command. He gives us specifics. And the specifics you'll find in verses 19 through 20, and they have four parts to it. It's the therefore, the go, the baptize, and the teach. I added a little therefore. I wasn't one of the participles, but I want you to hear that part of it. How do we go about making disciples? Jesus said, this is how you do it. First of all, you do it in light of what I've already told you. That's why the therefore is in the Great Commission. It says, go therefore. Right? Every time you see a therefore, what are you supposed to do, guys? Anybody? What was that? <laughs> well, let's see that again. That's what it's there for, right? You look at it therefore, you go back. You see, what's he talking about? What, what in light made the therefore come to come to play? And Jesus said, this is what you do. He says, go therefore. What's it therefore there? It's wherefore is therefore. Why is it there? For two reasons. First of all, you do this in light of the fact that he is worthy of worship. What have the disciples just done? They just worshiped the Lord Jesus. You don't go to the ends of the earth to ask people to bow their knees and to devote themselves in discipleship with somebody who's not God. You don't do this if you yourself aren't a worshiper. And he's not deserving of worship. But because he is, because all authority has been given to him, therefore you go. 
Therefore, you, 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 you go. But he also says, I've been given all authority. Therefore, you go. Guys, I want you to understand this, that it's, you go because he's worthy of worship, but you also go because if he has all authority, he really is then your king. So you do what the king calls you to do. Do you get that? Guys, I feel like we so often talk about God and Jesus. Oh, Jesus is my king. We might sing a song, Jesus is my king. Do you guys know, like, when someone's really your king, you actually do what they say. Now, this is kind of foreign, once again, like I said last couple weeks ago for us as, as, as people in the Western world, because we really don't have kings, and we don't like people telling us what to do. Am I right? In our Western kind of, Western mindset, we don't have kings, in this Western American mindset, we have presidents, and even then, we don't like, we actually yell at our presidents, tell our presidents that we don't like them all the time, and we just kind of say, we have politicians, we yell at the politicians, tell them we don't like them all the time, we have rules, we tell them we don't like the rules all the time, and so we're kind of like, this is foreign for us to have a king who basically we say, oh, tell us what to do, we just have to do it. That's, that's just weird for us. We're so fiercely independent, but God's called us to this beautiful relationship with a king who is worthy. And if he's worthy, if he really has all authority, then we should do what he tells us to do. And if we trust that he's also a good king, then we trust that what he calls us to do is worth doing. Do you hear that? So therefore, the next one is go. He says, go. This is where we get the concept of the world missions. He says to go to the nations. He doesn't mean nation state. He doesn't mean just across the border. He, literally, the point is you go to the peoples, the nations, the tongues, the tribes, cross every boundary of whatever it takes to make sure people know who Jesus is. Make sure disciples are being made from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So the goal of missions is not simply to get people to profess faith in Christ. It's for people to become disciples of Jesus. I want you to hear that. I feel like so oftentimes people struggle with the Great Commission. There's some who are like all about it. Some are like, yeah, give me a challenge, go. I want to go and make get as many people to say yes to Jesus as I can. And tell people, some people struggle with it. Some people struggle with the Great Commission because I'm like, they live in guilt. They feel like, oh, God called me to go and am I going enough? And some people really struggle with it. Guys, can I, can I tell you something, guys? That the purpose of the Great Commission is not to put guilt over you. It's not. When you hear me preaching this morning, please don't hear guilt over you over this passage. Please hear tension. Please hear calling. Please hear, let, let the Holy Spirit guide you in what he's called you to do. Please hear a call to living a life that's worthy and a call to advance the kingdom. Does that make sense? When it says go, please hear me very well. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to go overseas all the time. That's a part of it. Do you hear me? It doesn't mean that you have to um, go and talk to your waitress all the time and share the gospel with your waitress all the time. It could be. But that's not what it necessarily means either. It could also mean go and make disciples of your children. Go and make disciples of the people God's placed in your life. But it could also mean all those other things too. Live in that tension, my people, but don't live in the guilt. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? How do you make disciples? See, one of the problems in evangelism and missions is we stop short of the goal that Christ has given us in the Great Commission. We're satisfied when somebody makes a profession of faith. Jesus is not. He wants disciples, not just people who make professions of faith. Why? Because missions is a means to an end. What's our end? 
Guys, we're called to be people who glorify God and enjoy him. We're called to be people who advance his kingdom. And so that's why we're called to make disciples because disciples are the ones who advance his kingdom. Guys, I've said this before. I'll kind of share it again. But do you guys know back in the ancient Near East, right, the way a new king, a new emperor, a new kind of ruler would establish his rule and reign in all the kingdom, right, is he, they didn't have like, like news media to announce that now King, I was going to say King Billy again. I should not, use, I got to stop using King Billy as an example. I don't know why I was about to say that again. But the new king came into power. He didn't have a news radio station, he didn't have media to say, oh, everybody, now you're under the rule of King Billy. What they would do is he'd, show, he'd make images of himself, statues of himself to say, this is where the rule and reign of king is. This is where the emperor's rule and reign goes towards. They make big statues, they put their faces on coins, they make images of themselves. Then they send diplomats, who are images of the king, to go and establish his rule and reign. And that was, the Bible is very clear that language that he made. When we're making image bearers of God, we're literally making and advancing the kingdom of God, his rule and reign on earth. And when Christ calls us to this great commission, that's what he's literally doing. He's saying, go and advance to rule and reign his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We're called to make image bearers of God because that's how his kingdom advances. And where his kingdom advances, we see justice and mercy and love. Or we see a kingdom where there, you put away the sword You see a kingdom where peace reigns. That's the calling. That's what we're called to do as we make image bearers of God. People who look, live, act, speak, think, feel like Jesus. So that worship happens. Then it says baptizing them in the name of the Trinity. Really quickly, what that, what that means, baptizing the Trinity, first it means that this isn't a, just a little command to baptize. We're told that discipleship needs to be a public acknowledgement of, of the Lord Jesus. That's what baptism is. It's this public acknowledgement of Jesus Christ. So Jesus said that you need, as a disciple, you need to be publicly acknowledging who's Lord to you. And then secondly, in baptism, he's reminding us that discipleship cannot happen without the communion of saints. We call baptism the something that happens inside the life of the church amongst the communion of saints. So you, you're called to be a disciple, not as a lone ranger, but as part of the body of Christ, the communion of saints. That's why Paul says that it's with all the saints that he wants you to learn the love of God, which is in Christ. You're not called to this Christian life in isolation. You're called with the communion of saints around you. Third, the baptizing in the Trinity reminds us that church is where disciples are made. God's first plan A for advancing his kingdom is through his local church body. That's where we see accountability and teaching and encouragement and spurring one another on and loving each other. It's for discipleship in the body. Fourth, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit reminds us of this kind of triple lordship of God. When we're baptized, God's putting his, his stamp, his mark, his security deposit on us. And baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit sets forth the doctrine of the Trinity and emphasizes the deity of Christ. That's why he says, baptize and make disciples in that way. Then he says, teaching them. And I love two things about this command that's found interesting. First, he says, teach them to observe. Notice he holds teaching, knowledge, and doing practice together. He doesn't want his disciples just full of knowledge that they don't do. He says, teach them. It's good and well. You can teach all you want. Can I tell you this right now? You, the, the devil knows more theology and Bible than you do. It's not just knowing. It's, it's knowing and doing. 
It's practice. There's so many people that can tell you that can quote theology and scripture so much better than me. There's some theologians, and, or not even theologians, some professors out there who will just make me feel like I'm the biggest idiot in the world. But it's not just knowing. It's knowing and doing. It's just to observe. It goes hand in hand. He wants knowledge to lead to practice. Can I tell you something, guys? Good theology should lead to good practice. You with me? Good theology needs to lead to good practice. If it does not lead to good practice, then it's not good theology. Can you hear me? They go together. Second note he says about, about teaching is to observe this kind of points from, uh, amongst um, the, the kind of these essentials of his teaching is not just to observe four things about his teaching. So he doesn't say just observe like three things or some of the, the points that you like about his teaching. It says observe all that he's taught, to teach all that he's taught, and to observe all of it. He's committed to discipleship in a radical way. Discipleship is, is more than getting to know what the teacher knows, it's getting to be like the teacher himself. Making a disciple means the, the creating of a duplicate, not just someone who agrees intellectually with the principles of your religion, but someone who is transformed by the Lord. So any form of evangelism that underemphasizes the goal of discipleship is not true evangelism. We should be calling people to radical transformation, to obey the words of the teachings of Christ and to live it out so they look like Jesus. And I love how Jesus closes with this. He closes with comfort. You see his claim to authority. You see his command for discipleship. And then he closes with his comfort to his disciples. He says to them, in effect, I am with you all day, every day. He gives this huge command. He says, make disciples of all people. Teach them, baptize them, go. And he then he says these beautiful words that he says to them. We often overlook. He literally says, I know this is huge. But know this, I am with you all day, every day until I come back. And I can't imagine more comforting words than that. Especially in light of the commission that he's been given to them. In light of this huge task given to you, there couldn't be any more comforting words than he says, I'm with you. I got you. My power, my strength, my love is with you. My son Hudson lately has been more afraid of the dark. You know, I don't know, just, I guess, just, I don't know, lately he's just been more afraid of the dark. And one night he left his toy downstairs after we came up for bedtime. So he left it downstairs and we did the whole bedtime routine, bath, story, everything. And he goes, oh no, I left my toy. I was like, oh, you don't need your toy, you're fine. He goes, but I want to have it when I go to bed. So I said, all right, fine, just go run downstairs and go get it. And I thought nothing more of it. Went about, you know, getting Josiah ready and everything else. Then I'm like, a few minutes later, I was like, where's Hudson? He's not back from getting his toy yet. So I go over and I look for him. And I see him, he's at the top step. And it's really dark downstairs. For the past three minutes, I think he's been at the top step, building up the courage and the nerve to enter into the darkness down below. And the furthest he made it was the top step. So I kind of started watching him, like, Hudson, what's, what's going on? Why, why, aren't you, why aren't you going any further? What's going on here, buddy? And he looked up and he, goes, he says, I'm scared. I said, oh, you're scared? He said, yeah, I'm scared. So I said, oh, it's okay, buddy. I'll go with you. Let's go get it. As soon as I said those words, he took off. Ran down the stairs. Not scared. He's like, look to do, singing a song, ready to get his toy. Just went down the stairs, got his toy, and started coming back up. And I was like, at that point, I barely made it down two steps. I was like, oh, I thought we were going together. And he came back, he just wasn't scared at all. No fear. All he had to know was that I was with him. So he cared. He said, oh, well, I'm not scared anymore. My dad's with me. His dad had him. 
This commission is big. Life could be scary. It's hard. It's a broken world full of suffering at times. There's a lot of goodness in it. We get to experience the goodness of God in the land of the living. There's a lot of goodness. But it's scary sometimes facing this world. Worrying about your kids. Having this task of calling others to know Jesus. It's tough. It's scary. But your dad's with you. He's with you. He's got you. You don't have to be afraid. His strength empowers you. His spirit counsels you. His heart moves you. He's with you. Can there be more comforting words to his disciples than that? There are no more comforting words than that to me. That's why when we celebrate Easter together, my heart is uplifted because I know the resurrected king, the resurrected God is with me. And I believe that today. And I believe it every day because I need to and I choose to believe it. My people, we have a commission before us. And I know it's big. I know we're called to make disciples, but you're not doing it alone. He is with you. So let's do it together. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for the love that you've lavished upon us. That we're not alone. That Jesus, you are with us. God, you empower us and you move in us to be a part of this incredible mission. God, what, what love you've given us that we're called not just to go through life meaningless, but we're called to purpose. God, we get to see your kingdom come. We get to see lives transformed. We get to give you glory and praise. Thank you for giving us significance. That's eternal. And thank you for empowering us to do this goal and this mission. God, we ask, Lord, that you move mightily, that you remind us daily how much you love us, so that we can choose to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. At this time in our service, we are going to uh, join with our Christian sisters and brothers around the world in participation of the Lord's Supper, our communion. Same, same thing, different, different terminology. Um, this is a time when followers of Jesus come together and reflect and remember the death and suffering of Jesus and the new covenant and the hope we have in his resurrection, the new covenant we have in him. I do want us to take a moment to uh, just prepare your hearts. So just in your seats, right where you are, just silently, just, just confess to God. Just breathe out. Literally, it's like breathing. You just breathe out the junk so that you can breathe in him. So just take a moment to, just to confess to God. Now take a deep breath in and just accept his grace and his forgiveness. And this meal is for us who are followers of Jesus to remember and reflect. And it's, it's remembering this new covenant that Jesus made with us, that we are forgiven people, born again, new creations, people with a hope and a future, people of the kingdom, people who are filled with the Spirit and, and God uses us 
to be his, his church. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You can take the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it in remembrance, whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup. Father, we thank you that you came down to dwell among us, broken people, people who needed healing, people who needed forgiveness, people who needed a Messiah. And you came and you suffered and you died and you rose again and you give us a new covenant. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that we are people of the new covenant. May we live in that each day until we come back again to this table and you remind us again, God. May we live as people of the new covenant. And we just praise you and thank you that we get to be the body together. And we get to go and make disciples and be a disciple and be a worshiper of you. We give you all the praise and all the glory and we get to worship you now as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.